This is Ian Freebairn-Smith, and on behalf of the board, I welcome you to another ASMAC podcast. What you're about to hear is a recording of one of our monthly luncheon presentations recorded at Catalina's Jazz Club in Hollywood. These podcasts feature leading Hollywood composers, arrangers, orchestrators, and musicians talking about their lives and music. Now, on a brighter note, Chuck Fernandez, who is going to introduce our speaker and guest of the afternoon. Chuck? Good afternoon, everybody. Thanks for being here. I first heard Gordon Goodwin's work when he was working at Warner Brothers on the animation series over there, including Animaniacs, Road Rovers, uh, what was it? Uh, oh, I'm running a blank here. Uh, Road Rovers and Hysteria and Freakazoid, all illustrious titles, to be sure. And um, since then, uh, also, I had really no clue as to how what an expert he was at jazz and at writing for big band. But since then, he's won three Emmys. He's been nominated for eight Grammys. He started a camp for kids, for kids to uh, aspiring jazz artists. He is just now finishing his fourth CD with his award-winning band, the Big Fat Band. Where's the Big Fat Jazz Band? I think it's Big Fat Band, right? Okay, and also he has acted as composer, conductor, orchestrator, arranger for numerous, numerous artists and on numerous, numerous films. So hopefully he'll fill you in on all that. It's going to be an excruciatingly short luncheon. But in 2006, he won a Grammy for his arrangements of Michael Giacchino's uh, material for the Pixar movie The Incredibles. And this work called The Incredits happens to be a perfect example of his, of examples of his jazz writing and animation writing. So we wanted to play that for you first, before we had him come up. So please join ASMAC in welcoming a wonderful arranger, composer, uh, conductor, orchestrator, and all around nice guy, Gordon Goodwin. Thank you, Chuck, for stopping the DVD right in front of my favorite part. Was about to play. Thank you for that. Was that all your stuff on going to? It's a seven. It's like a nine-minute thing we did. Oh, want me to keep it going? No, no, no. It's done, man. <laughs> it just looked like it went to music at that point. That no, you know that gig was actually a pretty awesome gig without any without any question. I mean, Pixar is a studio that really knows how to make those movies without a doubt. You want to hear the stuff that went wrong with it? Yeah. Just between us, right? Right? Because, okay. So the only instruction that I had from Brad Bird was, here's Michael's themes, go nuts. But it needs to go like this. It needs to just kick ass for nine minutes. Solid nine minutes of intense big band, you know, John Barry-esque jazz rock. So I said, okay, man, okay, let's do that. So I, I took the themes and I just went and I just... I mean, you just heard the first, you know, three minutes were pretty traditional. But then we get into Big Man Swing. We get in a lot of different treatments of that material. The material was great. I mean, Michael wrote some really cool themes that lent themselves to a lot of different approaches. So I did a demo, and the demo kind of starts off, and then it just all the way to the you know, nine minutes worth, and it pays off. And they're going, this is great. Totally dig it. Go ahead and orchestrate it, all right? So, all right, so that's a lot of music to orchestrate it. So I started in, and I, you know, I had nothing else going. It was really a great time to be able to focus on the piece. And then about two days before the session, 
Brad Bird, the director, calls and goes, you know, I think it's great, but what we should do is the song you have at the beginning, let's swap that with the song you have at the end, right? Oh, really? Okay, so now I have a piece that starts like this, goes like this, goes up, and goes like this. So I have two days to, to fix this before we have our session at Sony with the 90-piece orchestra. Okay, so, you know, I'm trying to, you know, make it work and fix it, and we go into the, go into the session. Um, Brad's thing is he wanted the whole thing to be done live, no overdubs. He wanted it to be like we were in 1968 with the whole band there playing at once. Now that's cool, and you have to respect that, and he really has an affection for the music that was made in that time before we turned it over to all the amateurs. And, uh, and so he really did, you know, he's all for that, which is cool. But the problem is there's a reason we don't record music that way anymore, especially for film. For instance, when we're mixing and I'd say, hey, Danny Wallen, can you turn the strings up? And he'd turn the strings up and then the trumpets go up too. Can you, can you turn the shaker up a little bit? Turn the shaker up and then all of a sudden I got the back of the orchestra. So there are a lot of issues that we had to contend with as a result of that decision. But I'm cool because it's, I was a guest in their house. You know, it was Michael's gig. It was Brad's film. Clearly, you know, both remarkable gentlemen. And so I said, okay, you know, so Danny Wallen did a great mix, kind of tried to work through that stuff. So we do the mix. And then after the mix is done, Brad goes, you know what I was thinking? What if we take the song that's at the beginning and swap it with the song that's at the end? So think about that. So that's, and that's what we got, you know? And so I, I started to, you know, and, and I don't want to be a grouch about it because it was a great opportunity, great opportunity for me. It was great to see Michael, who's one of the nice guys in this town, have his career take off from that, from that film. And, um, but I think it was, I think it was my fault. Because what I didn't do, I didn't manage his expectation in the right way so that I gave him what he wanted and I got what I wanted. And that's the real trick, isn't it? Because, you know, you're working in this business and the directors and the producers will say, you know, I want this and it doesn't make any sense. I mean, you, uh, Charles was talking about uh, back in the Warner Brothers days and we had a producer, big shot guy, the big boss, you know, and one day he came into us and said, he, was, he hardly ever came to, to scoring dates, but he came this one time and he said, now, what is that sound, that sound there? And, and Rich Stone, who's the supervising composer, he says, well, that's a bassoon. He goes, that's kind of weird, isn't it, for, for animation music? So we're all kind of going, doo, 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 doo. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, Carl Stalling used it quite a bit, you know, so that's kind of, that's kind of appropriate. To, he goes, I think it's not, uh, we shouldn't be using bassoons in our, in, our, in our stuff. All right, so then we spent the next, the next uh, probably, you know, month, kind of hiding the bassoon, no, you know, and those bassoon solos and just kind of hiding that instrument, which is really hard, you know. And uh, so we figured, oh, eventually it'll start to come back to normal. And, of course, you know, this guy never came to dates. So we, we, so a month later, he shows up again, and sure enough, there's a cue. It wasn't one of my cues, but somebody's cue had a bassoon solo. So he stops and he goes, what, what, what's that sound there? And so Rich goes, oh, it's a, bass a bassoon. <laughs> and he goes, that's a really cartoony kind of sound, isn't it? Which goes, yeah, it is. He goes, yeah, we should use that. So you're like, darn. But when that stuff happens, what's your job as a composer? You know, you've got to find the answer or else don't take the gig. You know, if you want to write, write it the way you want, that's all great. And matter of fact, that's one of the reasons that I started the Big Fat Band in 2000, the year two, actually 1999, because I finally said, you know, I've got... All of a sudden, you look at your career, and maybe you've got more road behind you than you got ahead of you. I don't know how that happened, but, but all of a sudden, I think that's where I'm at. 
So you think, and as good as some of these projects are, are they me? Are they what I believe in? Or is it me trying to filter you know, other people's input? Film is a real collaborative medium. So I said, I think I'm going to form a band and I'm going to write the music the way I think it should sound. So um, when you get to that point in your life, it's amazing how things fall into balance. And, and um, I can get a little bit into that later. But um, as far as The Incredibles go, the most mind-blowing thing about that wasn't to be able to conduct that great orchestra and work on that great film, even winning the Grammy Award. It was who I beat out to get the gig that really blew my mind. So let me go back, and I'm going to play for you the first piece of music that blew my mind as a little kid, that got me thinking about music is what I'm going to do. You know the rest, right? <laughs> that piece blew my mind, and I was in fourth grade, and I went out and I bought this my mom did. And I learned it, and I went into my fourth grade class, and I played it. And for the first time, I had a thing that was me. You know, when you're a kid, you're trying to figure out, well, what do I do? What are my gifts? I, I was not anywhere near the athletic specimen you see before you tonight. <laughs> I was a clumsy little kid, you know, and so, but I found music. Because all the, all the kids are cool. So that was the first one. The next year, another piece of music had a huge impact. The only non-music job I've ever had in my life, I've had two. One was working on a road crew, and what I was doing that was. But the, the first one was mowing to earn money so I could buy the Tijuana Brass books published. And I had a little Tijuana Brass band, and it was huge. It was like, I, I go, now, now I'm getting somewhere. This is totally happening. Of course, many of you probably remember what a huge phenomenon that was. Instrumental music on the radio. And so one day, in, in seventh grade, my band director, so is Tijuana Brass, but you know, he's not a very good trumpet. I said, get out of here. We're talking about Herb Alpert. He goes, no. He goes, you need to listen to this record. Played me basic record. And on that record was this song. Anybody know that song? Come on, you losers. What is it? Close. It's the Queen Bee. Written by a guy named Sammy Nestico. And that song hit me between the eyes like nothing else. It's weird, because it's just kind of a happy, corny little tune. It sounds a little bit like Satin Doll or something, you know? But with Sammy's thing, and Marshall Royale playing lead alto, and the bassy band, I thought, that is me. It's weird that a seventh grader would, would, would maybe come to that realization, but for me, it was it. And so the most bizarre thing is to think that now, I could call, I could go, and I got Sammy in my phone, I could call him up, and he's my friend now. And that I beat Sammy Nesco out to do the, the Incredibles. That's not right. What's with that? <laughs> I, 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 really, I really think it's, it's it, I, I'm really trying to be sincere. It blows my mind. Sammy, and, and Sammy, for those of you that know him, he doesn't know he's Sammy. He really doesn't get it. You know, you're, we're around him at, at conferences and stuff, and people are coming up to him and bowing down, and he's like, what, what, I'm just, you know, trying to write the note. You know, and he's such a sweet man, and um, we are actually in the process of putting together a, a program for him that um, will be on PBS hopefully next year, and it's going to be kind of a celebration of his life. The big fat man will play his charts, because actually all the old bassy things, he doesn't own any of the you know, of the master. So he goes, I, it's my dream to have that song and all Basie Straight Ahead and all those old songs on something that I own. So 
we're putting that together now. There's a documentary that was done by Deanne Estrella, who's married to Tommy Vicari, our engineer. And she's kind of trying to finish that up. It's an amazing documentary on the life of Sammy Nestico. So we're trying to put that together, and uh, we'll you know keep our fingers crossed. Sammy is 85 next year, going strong. He had a couple of heart issues last year. But you know uh, I love him so much, and he was a huge influence. Now, when I was in high school, we had a good jazz band um, directed by a guy named Robin Snyder who said to me, after playing me Count Basie, he goes, you should write a chart. And I thought, how do you do that? I, you know, he goes, yeah, just give it a try. So he didn't tell me that the best way to organize it was to get a big piece of paper and do what's called a score. He just said, go write a chart. So I said, all right. So I went home, and I knew there were five saxes, so I got five pieces of manuscript paper and laid them up, and I got four for the trumpets and four of the trombones. I go, okay, now what would the first alto play? And I just started to write music. And I just was, it was like a puzzle to put together, you know? Now, it was a stupid, simple little tune, but it got me off the ground. And Robin Snyder, who was my high school band director and mentor, he played it. We recorded it on a you know spring concert record. And every year after that, he'd say, yeah, write us another chart. So I started to get used to, you know what it is as a composer to put your music out in front of musicians, you know, that have played a lot of great music. And, and I, I was able to get over that and get used to, to, to doing that at that time. At that time, we were playing the music of primarily three composers. One was Sammy. One was a guy by the name of Kim Richmond, who's sitting right here. Now, Kim, we were by a lot of charts from Kim, and the influence that that had on me was, was amazing because you never knew what you were going to get. You get a straight-ahead chart. You might get a rock and roll chart. You might get a kind of a concert-style piece. It was a really wide stylistic range, which had a huge impact on me. It doesn't have to all be ding, ding, ga ding, ding, ga ding, you know? And um, one time, Kim brought his band to my high school to play. He played an assembly for like, the whole student body. And I don't know what the rest of those kids were thinking, but I was just dying. I was freaking out. It was so great to have, you know, Dave Edwards and Terry Harrington were playing, and uh, I think Warren Looney and incredible, you know, people playing right there in our backyard. So a big influence for me to, ha to, ha to have Kim's, you know, writing and, and, uh, and, and, and influence. The third guy was a guy by the name of Bob Florence. And the first time I heard his music, my band director had a record of his called Here and Now. And I, I, that record, that sounds like big bands are supposed to sound like to me. It's just clean. It's popping. It's clear. you know. And, and so we would play uh, maybe three or four charts a year, and I would volunteer to drive out to Bob's house because I could pick up the chart, and I knew I could ask him a question, you know? Be on his doorstep, and he'd go, here you go, kid. i go, so, Mr. Florence, so when you have a saxophone section, and if there's, like, repeated notes, what do you do? And he goes, switch them. Close the door in my face. And I'm like, switch them. Yeah, switch them, you know? What the hell? I don't, what is that supposed to mean, you know? So I drive out, you know, about two, three times a year, you know, ask him, a, you know, one question at a time. And later years, I got to play in his band and, and you know, to feel that music. And, and for Bob... You know, he was a real perfectionist about things. You'd play his charts and you'd see little goof strip, little corrections everywhere. And I'd say, what is that? He goes, oh, I just wanted to fix it. And I go, I thought it was cool before. He goes, nah, you know, I wanted to fix it. And I never, ever used to do that. I'd write a chart on to the next, you know. But he realized that this music is a document. You know, it's a document of who you are and what you want to say. And he goes, I got to get it right, even if it takes me 10 years to get it right. That had a big influence on me years later to say, maybe I need to, you know, do my own thing. Put the band together, you know, and, and declare it that way. So anyway, so those three guys, you know, at a formative uh, stage were very important to me. Got out of high school, went to Cal State Northridge, 
as a classical saxophone major. Classical, yeah, now that, there's an acquired taste if there ever was one. <laughs> You know, and I sounded more like Guy Lombardo on that horn than, than anybody, than Marcel Moulet. I mean, it was terrible. I, you know, and everybody hated me because I had this big, edgy sound, and it was, it was um, problematic. But I studied with a guy named Bill Hawkins, a dear old man, still with us. And uh, old session player, used to play on Green Acres and uh, uh, Adam's Family and sitcoms back in the, in the day, Andy Griffith. Uh, so, so Bill straightened me out. You know. Now, Bill straightened me out along with a, a, an infamous lesson I had with Phil Woods. And, and this, this lesson was um, the most traumatizing thing I've ever been through. Because he was living out here at, at the time, and, I, and a friend of mine named John Yoakum, who played on The Incredibles, played the alto solo you heard for a minute, he said, yeah, Phil's in town. I just took a lesson. It was great. He was so nice. It was so cool. Call him up. I said, yeah, of course. So I call Phil up, and I set it up, and I go there, and, and I uh, get my alto out. And he goes, all right. He goes, play something. And he's kind of like rubbing his face, you know, and stuff. It's 10 o'clock on a Saturday morning, so I don't know what had been going on the night before, but here we are. So I go, get my... He goes, no, no, play, play a song. Oh, play, play a song. Oh, okay, so I go... He goes, why, why'd you do that? Do, what, what? He goes, why did you put that grace note up there? I was trying to interpret the, uh, you know, and I, at this point I knew this is not going well, right? <laughs> Phil goes, what? He goes, Vic, get in here, Vic. Vic, you know, and this other guy comes in. He goes, give him your horn. So I hand my horn to this other guy, who I found out is a, is a sax player named Vic Morosco. And Vic goes, horn's okay. So Phil, so Phil's, right? So Phil goes, you gotta get your shit together before you come to me. What are you doing, man? I said, well, um, I just got back from playing at the Monterey Jazz Festival. I made the A band at Northridge as a freshman. I was doing okay, you know? And, and, and I, I, I just was like, uh, the, uh, the, you know, he goes, yeah, he goes, you know what? Vic, Vic's going to teach you. So he walks out of the room. And I'm going, uh, you know. So Vic goes, okay, kid. Now, here's the thing. You got your, read your, your mouth, I guess. You know, roll your lip out, man. He goes, you know, Reed needs to vibrate, man. Roll, get a little bit of skin on there, you know. And I said, okay, okay, so... He goes, play me a low B flat. So I roll my lip out and I'm like, honk. You know, I have no control over anything. Honk. He goes, oh, okay. You know, and then Phil comes in and he's sitting on the couch and he's like this. <laughs> and I'm honk, you know. And so I had to change my embouchure. I had never really, no one told me that. I was so eager to get to the music. I didn't, you know, I, I, my, and my band director, who was a great influence, he had other issues. So he's not going to deal with, you know, your embouchure is not too cool, kid. Your ligature sucks. Your mouthpiece isn't good. You, you know, you need to. You know, get the tools of your craft together. And this became a pattern for me because I had the same problem as a pianist. I, I didn't, I, I had to take lessons from a classical piano player named Mark Richmond who taught at UCLA when I was 26 or 27. And he said, Gordon, it's too late for you, man. Your cartilage is all done. It's formed. You're, you know, you can't fix this. I go, I gotta fix it because I was doing a gig with Johnny Mathis and I was playing this big concert piano thing and my wrists were on fire and I'm 27 years old. And so, he, he said, he goes, man, you're not breathing when you're playing the piano. What? You're holding your breath. What are you doing? So anyway, he gave me some exercises. I had to go back and fix that. Um, I kind of did it with my writing, too. I just was so eager to get to the music. Now, of course, as composers, all of us, you know, a lot of it, we kind of have to figure it out on our own anyway, right, to a degree. And back in the day, there were a couple of books you could get. You could get 
you know, Dick Grove's book and Russ Garcia had a book and uh, I think the Mancini book was out. Didn't have the Sammy book or the Sebesky book or Ray, Ray Wright's book or all those things that are out there now. So, you know, for me, it was a matter of getting a Thad Jones score, getting one of Kim's scores or Bob Florence or Sammy and rolling around with it and did, what, how did he do that? Sitting at the piano, picking it out and doing that homework and, um, uh, you know, that's something that I tell kids a lot now. I said, you know, the, you know, you got time. Don't rush into it. Make sure that when you get on stage, you know that you've done your homework and you prepared. So, uh, anyway, Northridge graduated there, uh, as a, a saxophone major. Kept my piano playing going pretty good. At the time, I was also playing in a rock and roll band at night. And this was another growth thing for me, because when I went into college, I was a jazz snob. I hated pop music, didn't like the Beatles, didn't like, you know, any of those rock and roll bands. I hated classical music. I couldn't tell you Bach from Stravinsky. And at Northridge, they didn't have a jazz major, and it's a damn good thing they didn't, because they forced me to study conducting. They forced me to study orchestration and music history and all those things that I wouldn't have chosen on my own. And nowadays, I kind of wonder about all the choices that are there for kids. I mean, my kid's about to, he's a junior in high school, talking about going to Berkeley next year. And they've got just a smorgasbord of, you know, choices to make. And, I, you know, I wouldn't have predicted as a college kid, you know, that I'd be writing for film or having to be, you know, I mean, I, if I would have played lead alto in Buddy Rich's band, that would have been my career goal. I didn't know it paid $300 a week, you know. <laughs> I didn't know anything about that. So the fact that I had to do that stuff was really unlocked it for me. I was forced to do that, and, and I'm so grateful for that. Um, playing in that rock and roll band taught me an appreciation of R&B music and rock and roll and that I can't listen to it in the same, with the same set of ears that I listened to the Rite of Spring or I listened to Bill Evans' trio or whatever. So um, that kind of helped round things out for me. And I also took a couple of lessons, big band writing lessons from a guy named Alf Clausen. And Alf charged 50 bucks an hour, which I thought was just outrageous. I even said, how could you charge 50 bucks an hour for a lesson? He goes, I can't give my time up for less than that. It's just economics, you know? And I, I said... You know, that, that's why I learned what a businessman Alf Clausen was <laughs> early on, you know. And this is way before Simpsons, you know. Alf was like a drop-dead amazing big band writer. And I know maybe a lot of you have heard his record that he, re that he just released a couple years ago. Alf is definitely the man. Um, so after that, um, I kind of started to float around gig-wise. Because I could play the piano pretty good and I could play the saxophone pretty good. My doubles were adequate so I could do a couple of sessions. Um, I didn't really say, I'm going to go down this road, you know. I would go a little bit down this road, then I'd back up, I'm going to go a little bit down this road, you know. And I, and I think it's a good thing to have a balanced life, but it kind of keeps you from pro progressing at a rate you would normally would, you know, if you just had one thing, and I'm going to be a piano player, and that's my thing. So I think if you look at a, anybody that really is accomplished at something, I don't know if their life is, is in balance, you know. I mean, it's Kobe Bryant's, well... That's probably a bad subject to bring up this morning, but anybody that, that's that accomplished, is their life in balance, you know? What's going on with their family? What's going on with their relationships? What's going on, you know, with their business angle and, and, and the whole thing? It's really something that occupies most of my time is keeping that balance, you know? I mean, I know I had to play a few little things on the piano this morning, you know, and I go, I better warm up on the piano. You know, I gotta, I'm so, uh, uh, convinced now that the proper warm-up is, is so important, you know, to go and to be prepared to do it. So, um, but when I first started out, you know, I didn't really have, have a balance in my life, and I landed at a gig at Disneyland. 
And, and that ended up to be also a really lucky thing because Disneyland back then especially, man, they had all kinds of gigs for musicians. I played in sax quartets, I played in the marching band, I played in Dixieland bands, I played in rock and roll band. I met my wife Lisa at Disneyland. She was singing in the band that uh, stage comes out of the ground at Tomorrowland, you know, so. Uh, and it was at Disneyland that Jack Eskew made an assessment of my talent as a writer. And I'm going to quote him here. This guy has absolutely no commercial sense as a writer. <laughs> now, I had written a show, my first, probably my first real commercial writing gig, I wrote a show for the Mouseketeers. And it was like a, a combination of the new Mouseketeers and some of the older ones and Tommy and Cubby and those guys were back, you know. And I wrote, a, I wrote a arrangements for the show. And at the time, I was working a lot as a player, and the important thing for me was, I want the players to like this music. I want them to think that I'm a good writer. So I'm writing licks, I go, yeah, he'll like this lick, you know? And I overshot the bar. I overshot the gig. And Jack Eskew, and I was pretty upset for him to say that, you know? Yeah, like, you could write this stuff, pal, you know? Now, he and I are friends now, too. But you know, the thing is, he was absolutely right, you know? It doesn't, it shouldn't have mattered to me that, you know, that the players like my music. The only thing that should have mattered was that the producer and the director and the music director at the park liked my music. Or I shouldn't have taken the gig. So, um, We've had a good laugh about it, you know, since then. But um, you know, it was it was a it was definitely a, an eye opener for me. Um, I skipped probably, and I, I kind of do this on purpose, um, but I skipped a seminal event in my life because before I got the gig at Disneyland, right out of college, I got asked by uh, a roommate of mine. He says, "My um, brother is making a movie down in San Diego, and they need a score." And I said, "Yeah, cool, yeah." You know, it's like, "Oh, that's how you get into film scoring," you know. Nepotism, you know, no problem. I'll do it. And he goes, all right. He goes, um, I don't know what it's about, but I think there's a screening in Hollywood that he wants us to come. So I go, all right. And so now this is pre-VCR days, guys. It's all moviola time, you know. So I said, all right. So I go down to Hollywood at Glen Glen Sound, and I meet this director. His name is John DeBello. I go, hey, John, how you doing? He goes, all right. I want to show my movie. It's really supposed to be really funny, but kind of a horror film. Let's check it out. So he, we sit down, and we start to watch The Attack of the Killer Tomatoes. And I'm watching this movie with the director right here, and it's him and me and no one else in the room. And after about 12 minutes, I go, oh, I am in trouble because I need to be laughing at this stuff, and it is so terrible. And he's watching me for my reaction, you know? And I was so green. Hey, nowadays, I could sit next to him, and I'd be laughing, like, I'd be, I'd be selling it, you know? But back then, I, I was, it was so awful, you know? Anybody see it? <laughs> one guy. Did you see the whole thing? Whoa, that's sad. A little sad. Not in one sitting. Not in one sitting, okay. <laughs> so since I didn't have a VCR, since they hadn't been invented yet, um, what I did to write that score was the director would give me these timing sheets and he'd, and he'd say, the action is tomato advances on woman. D you know, and they would say, you know, 15 seconds, music description, suspense. Then next, the next cut, tomato advances on woman further. 12 <laughs> seconds, more suspense. You know, tomato, and it was just that, more suspense, you're like whole pages of suspense. And so, I mean, I don't know, how did I even get any nuance? Because I just saw it the one time, you know, before I even had thought I was going to do the gig. So I remember writing that music, and I didn't. And Alf actually helped me. You know, he goes, you know, you, you ever heard a click track? And, you know, here's how you, you know, figure out your tempos. And it was, I was so green and so terrible. I want to ask you, as a personal favor to me, don't watch the movie, please. Will you promise that to me today? 
All right. Not anymore. You know, in a way, it's good that it was as terrible as it was, you know, because if it would, if it would have been 90% better, it still would have been the worst piece of crap, you know. But it was so bad that, you know, it's gotten a lot of acclaim. And, and I got paid $2,000 to do the score, and I, I got paid six years later after the movie came out. I finally got my two grand. <laughs> oh, man. Okay. Uh, after that, at, at Disneyland, I heard that Johnny Mathis was having auditions for piano players. So I thought, that might be a good gig. He, I mean, Johnny Mathis, I didn't know much about him. I knew he was a ballad singer. I had no idea that he was such a masterful guy in terms of his, you know, the style. I mean, he could sing, you know, any, he saw beautiful Latin music, you know, and straight ahead swing and all kinds of things. So I went and got the gig with him, first class, you know, all the way. It was really a great way. And he was, he's really a nice man. And... Um, uh, a couple things stick out in my mind about my tenure with him. I, I played piano for him for a while, then I conducted for him for about three years. And at one point, we were in London doing a gig, and we're about to go on, and he goes, oh, by the way, Oscar's in the house. All right, see you later. And so I go, Oscar's in the house. I wonder which Oscar he means. Does he mean Oscar, Oscar Robinson? No. I wonder if he means, you know, of course, he, you know, I, and I, I said, I found him at, at intermission. I go, you never tell me, tell a piano player that Oscar's in the house before the show. I'm going out there and I, I go, does it go this way or go this way? How does this work, you know? So um, a few years later, we're doing a gig at Lake Tahoe. And uh, after the show, he comes in and he goes, Gordon, come here. I said, yeah, he goes, there's someone I want you to meet. We go back into the green room and he goes, I'd like you to meet Miles Davis. He goes, I didn't tell you before the gig. <laughs> So I met Miles, you know, and I'm like, ah, oh, you know, Mr. Davis, you know, this geeky white kid. You know, he, he was so cool. I could never be that cool ever in my life, you know. <laughs> but I learned that Johnny Mathis was tight with all those guys. He, you know, he hung with Miles, you know. He hung with, with Oscar and all those guys, even though you don't think of him as a jazz singer. So years later, when I needed a singer on one of our records, I called Johnny and go, hey, would you mind singing on our record? And, and we did a, a, a pretty rocking version of uh, Let the Good Times Roll with Johnny Mathis singing vocals. I mean, he's not Joe Williams, you know, but he does it. He's, he's got that same thing, you know. He's got a, his version of it. And um, uh, Johnny Mathis taught me that how you can go on stage. I used to say, how do you go on stage and sing Misty every single night? Oh, my God. He goes, well, I love Misty. I go, well, of course everybody loves Misty, but come on. Because at the time, I could play good when I felt like playing good. How do you go out and play your best when you don't feel like it, you know, when it's just another night at the office? And um, I've learned a little bit about that since then, because I thought Johnny was blowing me off with that answer, you know, a little bit like, no, I love Misty. Well, okay. Now, but once I got the big fat band going and started playing for audiences that, that you know, recognized our music and wanted to hear certain songs... Like we have a song called Hunting Wabbits that we do this very popular. Another song called The Jazz Police, which the guys in the band can barely stand to play anymore, except when the audience starts going crazy and, and clapping for that song, I want to give it to them, you know? And, um, uh, and so for Johnny, you know, I, I got to write arrangements for him. He taught me a lot about how, you know, how to, you know, support a singer and not get in his way and all, the, all those kind of things. And, and he also taught me that singing and playing music is a great gift. And I think as studio musicians, a lot of times we start to think of it as, you know, record the cue, next cue, you know, and you think it's anonymous. You know, you're in the studio, no one's clapping for you. You don't get the feedback that you get when you're on stage. And that's probably been the single most gratifying thing for me to uh, having the big fat band is to get to remember this is why I started playing music. Because when I was in fourth grade, I played the Batman theme and I got that 
feeling from everybody. I got an interaction with other people. You know, a lot of us lose sight of that in this town, I think. You know, because it's just, we're, we're talking about, we measure our gigs by how much money we made on it or how easy it was. You know, wow, we got out, you know, the session was booked for three hours, we got out in 10 minutes, it was great. You know, I, I hear guys saying that and I go, well, that's, you know. And, you know, I, I think, uh, I, I think about the Batman thing and I, it reminds me when I got to meet Neil Hefty and I told him, you know, about my, how it inspired me. And he, he, he I, I never saw a man roll his eyes more than what Neil did when I told him. That. He goes, yeah, great. Out of all the songs I wrote, that's the one that inspired you, you know. Okay. Um, uh, I, Disneyland, the Walt Disney Company has been a good, uh, very good relationship for me, not only with the theme park work that I've done, but also I got the writing for different projects. I mean, we were talking earlier about opportunities for write for orchestra. How do you get that, you know? It seems like if you're not writing for film, you're not going to do much of that unless you create it on your own, you know, like, like he is and like Chris does, you know. It's just, if, having a big band is economically ridiculous, but trying to get or, an or, orchestra project, I just don't know how you possibly would be able to do that. So um, doing the theme park projects for me was also another way to be able to write for an orchestra. And this is before I started to do very many films as an orchestrator, as a conductor. So, you know, we got to use big, you know, 90-piece bands and um, go to London and hear that sound. And, and it really was, uh, you know, for me, I mean, big bands are where I live, without a doubt. But I think I'd go nuts if I couldn't stand up in front of a string section, you know, and hear that sound. Um, and, uh, you know, the Walt Disney Company helped me to, you know, to get a, a little taste of that. When I started working at Warner Brothers, as Chuck said, I started on a show called Sylvester and Tweedy. Now, the goal there with Rich Stone as a supervising composer was we are doing Carl Stalling and we're hitting that target in the center. That's what we do here. And I thought, Carl Stalling, I got it. No problem, right? I've been watching those cartoons forever. And I wrote my first Sylvester and Tweety cue and I'm sitting there in the booth as they're playing it and after four bars I realize I missed the target. It was so obvious, especially after Rich and Steve Bernstein, you know, those guys who are just killing this stuff. And, um, and so I'm sitting there with Rich, and this is, you know, I was probably 38 or 39 years old, you know, well into it, and he's got my score, and he'll go, all right, got a red pencil. Don't do that, okay? That's okay, but no, uh, take it down an octave. Never do that. <laughs> and he's marking my score up, you know, and I'm hearing the orchestra play my stuff that sounds wrong and lame, and, and it was terrifying, and, and it was exhilarating, because I, I had another mentor, you know? When you, when you learn a lot about music, it's great, but then you, you know, ever notice how you stop being surprised as often? And I mourn that, you know, when you, when, when you hear a chart and you go, well, that sounded pretty much like I thought it would sound. I liked it when, when you hear a chart and, well, that didn't work at all. What's, what's up with that? Or, wow, why did that work so well? I, I really, uh, you know, uh, try, to, try to create those moments, and boy, I had that with Rich, you know. And so, but he heard enough in what I was doing to go, all right, write a couple more cues. We'll see you next week. So the next week, you know, he was still marking it up, but not as bad. And then by the third week, I kind of had put it together, you know. And that was, that was such an amazing era. You know, we had, I don't know, what do we have, uh, three sessions a week going on. Because we had Sylvester and Tweety. We had Animaniacs. We had Pinky and the Brain. We had a show called Freakazoid. And we had uh, a show called Road Rovers and Hysteria. I think that's all of them, maybe. A lot of them. And, and, and the whole thing with that, you, may, you guys may know the story, that Steven Spielberg had said, when, they said, all right, you can do Tiny Tunes, put my name on it, but I have a couple of things. And one of the things is no library music, live orchestra for every episode. 
He said that for Tiny Toons. Now, this has nothing to do with Tiny Toons, but it was the same studio. So they kept thinking, oh, I guess we have to use live orchestra. So we were just, it was really, there wasn't a synthesizer to be found in those days. It was so awesome, you know, and, and um, it was a 10-year run for Rich. I was involved about five of those years. And I don't think it's any coincidence that when that thing ended, Rich Stone got sick. He, you know, after Hysteria's run ended and they weren't doing that stuff, I remember talking to him and he said, I, I, you know, my agent won't call me back. And, I, and I, you know, it's kind of a drag. I said, well, Rich, man, you don't really have money problems, I don't think, do you? You know, he goes, well, no. I said, well, why don't you write your symphony, man? You know, write your, he goes, I wouldn't know where to start. He goes, I've been writing music triggered by visual images for so long. I, I don't know, well, I don't know who I am. All I do is I do Carl Stalin. And it was breaking my heart to hear him say this. And then a few months later, you know, he gets the cancer. And then a year later, you know. And so uh, that affected a lot of us, you know, that were involved in that whole thing. That great 10-year run. And then it ended. And then Rich ended. And I, I learned so much for Rich. I mean, he, you know, when I was scoring for animation, I can always find a clever way to solve the problem. But Rich found the most simple and logical way to solve the problem, you know? He, he was a great, you know, lyricist, uh, you know, wrote great melodies, and he just found that solution. I could kind of sleight of hand, you know, and trick you. It would sound tricky and cool, but man, Rich would always find the right thing, so um, we, we definitely miss, miss him a lot. Um, I, at the end of that run, got introduced by a guy named Trevor Rabin, who played guitar in the rock and roll band, yes, and he was starting to do some composing and needed a guy. You know, needed a conductor and an orchestrator. And we had a meeting, and we hit it off pretty quick. Both big Laker fans, you know, that, that didn't hurt. Um, but Trevor, whose, dad, whose father was a classical uh, violinist and, and conductor. So even though you think of him as kind of like, uh, you know, rock and roll guy, maybe Hans Zimmer-esque kind of composer, he's got serious chops. He doesn't always get to use them, but he's got that happening. And... Um, my relationship with him was actually what got the big fat band going because I could orchestrate for his films, right? Get my benefits, get my health insurance, get my pension, and I didn't have to take the meetings that he had to take. I could just show up, you know, and and you know, make a good living. And and taking the meetings, man, that's the whole, that's the hardest part. I remember John Barry saying something about, you know, I'll write the music for free, but I'm going to charge you 150,000 to put up with your bullshit. You know, that's the truth of it, you know. And so um, I think that I think we have to we have to man up to that. And I don't know that we're doing a, a really good job. It's hard. I, I'm not saying that I'm the guy to stand up to Jerry Bruckheimer and say, you know, I won't do that. Because if I won't do it, there's a bunch of guys that will. So I think you need to live to fight another day. But I I uh, feel like, you know, the current technology is is allowing these people, the producers and directors, to get their fingers into the music. And we're the professionals when it comes to that, and they aren't. And I think it's a, a treacherous line we need to learn to walk to be, able to, take, to be able to sell that somehow a little bit better. I could be full of it, you know, because I've caved plenty of times, you know. But one of the things, you know, that I think that, that has happened for me since I started the Big Fat Band is people started to call me for things that I... I'm kind of really suited for, like The Incredibles, you know? So they almost look at me like, as, well, look, here's our big band guy. So I have a little more credibility, you know, in terms of saying, I think we should do this. Now, of course, I didn't say it with The Incredibles because it wasn't my gig. It was Michael's gig, you know? So I think there was kind of a protocol thing working there. But, you know, I got to do a, a great little film uh, that about three people saw called The Majestic, 
for Frank Darabont, and it was uh, had Jim Carrey, and he played a you know piano player, a lot of jazz and the music. We brought Eddie Daniels in to play the clarinet part, and it was really a, a, a lot of fun. Although that was the start of my career as the franchise killer, because I kind of felt like you know I got involved in the Warner Brothers thing, and then then that whole thing went away, and then before the Majestic. Uh, Frank Darabont did The Green Mile and he did The Shawshank and got all these Oscars. Jim Carrey was hot as can be. Then they make this movie and no one goes to see it. Then I got to work on Star Trek Nemesis, which was the movie that pretty much killed the Star Trek franchise. So, you know. <laughs> but the thing is, you know, finding out what you love and doing that, I think, has, has been the real key for me. So when I started the Big Fat Band in 1999, I said, you know what, we're not going to do any live gigs. That's too much. I don't want to be making those phone calls. I don't want to deal with those schedules. Let's just go in and record the music, document it, you know, and then uh, and then that'll be it. Uh, and of course, then we got an offer to do a little gig, and then we did another one. And it was so fun. And all of a sudden now, I mean, I've got, you know, my wife, I've got an assistant, I've got Dan Savant who contracts and payrolls, his assistant, Danny, Marcy and Sherry, and we've got agents at William Morris, and we've got a publicist, a great publicist by Peter Levinson, seven, eight people that are trying to keep this ship in the water, to keep this big band thing going. And, you know, my family has paid the price for that, because the more I do with the big fat band, the less I'm doing, you know, you know, commercial gigs, and I, and I have to watch how the, you know, the money balances out there. But you know what? I've never felt better in my life to do my thing, you know, and not have people tell me, don't use the bassoon, or you know, wh whatever it is that you know that they're going to tell me. So, um, I want to play you guys uh, a new track. Uh, the Big Fat Band has three records out, actually four, counting a, a, a Looney Tunes Christmas record we did. But our fourth real record is uh, coming out in September, and we're mixing it actually starting tomorrow. And one of the tracks on there. Well, we actually, we have, we've had some great guest artists, you know, which has been a real privilege to bring in people like Arturo Sandoval and Michael. We got Michael Brecker on one of our tunes before he died. We got Take Six, Johnny Mathis, Brian McKnight, Diane Reeves, David Sanborn played on the track. On the new record, we have Chick Corea, Patty Austin, Lee Rittenauer, Dave Grusin, and Art Tatum. Now, the whole Art Tatum thing, right? <laughs> you may be wondering, well, what's up with that? So, I got a call from a guy named Jeff McIntyre, who is the brother of a talk radio host here in LA named Doug McIntyre. You guys ever listen to his show, Drive Time Radio, uh, on uh, AM 790? And he plays a lot of our stuff and is a, a big fan of, uh, supporter of jazz. Matter of fact, he's got a film about Jack Sheldon that's playing right now at the Crest Theater in Westwood. I think it's playing for a, a couple more days or something. Am I right? Great, you guys, get, drag yourselves down there, go see it, it's so awesome. And Doug and Penny, his wife, put this film together and spent their own money on it, and it's really, really rewarding to watch it. So, um, so Jeff, his brother, calls me, he says, we have a concert, we'd like you to emcee it. It's the music of Art Tatum. And I said, okay, what does that mean? He goes, well, we, my company developed a piece of software, and, and I'm gonna try to explain this the right way, because I get in over my head technologically pretty quick, but you can feed an audio signal in, in this case, Art Tatum's solo piano performance. It takes it, analyzes it, and it converts it into data that can be played by a Yamaha Discover piano. It's like the next generation MIDI, but it's a nuanced on a level that you can't believe. And, I, and at the concert, I stood right by the piano and I watched the level of you know, pedal response and touch, and it's just another thing. Now, why do that to Art Tatum is the question. He says, well, Art Tatum did a concert at the Shrine Theater here in town in 1939, 
Piano Starts Here was what it was called. Columbia released it, but they cut it all up. They edited it, they cut it all, they, and, and it was had, you know, kind of recording quality of the day. The piano was a little bit out of tune, all that stuff. He goes, so we basically are going to re-perform that same concert. Every tune he did, re-record it, surround sound, you know, all the, all the, all the bells and whistles. So we want you and Doug McIntyre to come out and MC the concert and talk about art. So I said, all right. So we go, and it was just, I think Art Tatum is a little bit underexposed. Everybody knows Oscar. Everybody knows Herbie and Chick and, you know, on down the line. But Tatum, you know, you t especially ask young people. They don't really know who he is. And you listen to this guy, and it's not only just technically he was above everybody, including Oscar, include, you know, even Horowitz thought that Tatum was God. But the harmonic vocabulary this guy's doing back in 39 is just another thing. So MC in the concert, and I'm listening to this stuff, and I start to fantasize about, I wonder what, if they would let me take this track and I could write an arrangement around art so he could be like a guest artist with the band. I wonder if I could get away with that, you know? So I talked to him. He goes, you know, absolutely, because they kind of owed me for doing the concert and everything, you know? So he goes, we, that sounds fantastic. Let's go for it. It was really uh, an honor for us to play some part, you know, the legacy of that great man. And we hope that, you know, it'll lead people to check out art. And, and the, the record, the full concert, we just did one tune. The full concert is out on Sony Classical. Uh, it's called Piano Starts Here. And it's really, you know, uh, uh, hopefully it'll, it'll bring his music into wider acceptance. So okay. well, anyway, thanks everybody very much. Thank you for listening to another ASMAC podcast. We welcome your feedback at asmac.org. This is Ian Freebairn-Smith on behalf of the board, and I would like to invite you to attend our events, including luncheons, master classes, and our annual Golden Score Awards banquet. For a complete list of our podcasts and DVDs, please visit our website at www.asmac.org. Many thanks to Larry Goldman of Balboa Studios for recording this talk and to Elliot Barker of Elbar Media for editing it for broadcast. <laughs>